0: Well, good morning everyone. Good morning. My Bible is opened up to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 2. going to read some verses there, maybe some familiar verses to us in just a moment in Genesis chapter 2 as we open up the Word of God and as we center our hearts and our minds and our, our thinking to the pages of Scripture for these next few minutes. It is great to have the opportunity on this just glorious and beautiful first day of the week to uh, spend some time together in the Bible. We are returning to our preaching theme once again for 2020. I do realize that last Sunday I did preach on marriage matters, but you know what? It's a brand new month. It's October and I really don't even want to delay to the end of the month. I want to go ahead and talk about October's installment of Marriage Matters. Do that right now and let's begin that. In Genesis chapter 2, I'm reading here beginning in verse 21. In Genesis 2 and in verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God then says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. How do you think that Adam felt on that fateful day? How do you think that Adam felt on the day that he got a wife? How do you think that he felt on this, what is essentially his wedding day? Well, I'm going to guess that probably like a lot of other newlyweds, Adam was pretty excited. I think he was probably pretty eager to begin this new relationship with this woman. In fact, some translations actually render in chapter 2 and in verse 23 that Adam exclaimed. He was shouting for joy. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Look, she's like me. I now have a companion. And I would imagine as well that even Eve, once she maybe got over the initial shock and awe of being created, And looking at this man, well, what are you and who am I and what is this world that she too had some of that newlywed excitement as well over the possibility of a husband and a wife, a marriage has begun. But then what happened? How long did that newness and that excitement last in Adam and Eve's relationship? Well, like a lot of marriages, my guess is that after maybe a few months, maybe even a couple of years, who knows, that some of that new began to, to wear off a little bit. In fact, if you really want me to pinpoint where I think the new really began to wear off, it'd be right around chapter 3, say, oh, mm, verse 12, after Eve had given to Adam this fruit from the tree that had been forbidden of them and sin enters into this world, and God confronts them both, and Adam then throws his wife under the bus, I'm going to guess that right about then, the honeymoon was over. It wasn't like it was in the very beginning. I'm going to guess there was some tension, that there was some problems. I'm going to guess that their marriage hit a flat spot. In fact, if it didn't happen there, it surely would have happened once God booted them out of the garden and they then had to figure out how to coexist and live as man and wife away from the garden of paradise. And you know what? I believe what happens in their marriage is no different than what happens in many, if not all, marriages. There is that period after we say, I do, where man, it's just exciting, and it's wonderful, and it's just awesome, wow, we get to live together. We get to know the blessings and the joys of of marital bliss, and it's just awesome. But then some time does pass by. Maybe it is as much as a couple of years. Maybe it's a shorter period of time, a few months. And before you know it, life begins to settle in. Real life, reality settles in some problems and some difficulties that come along with marriage, those begin to enter into the picture. And this thing that was so shiny and beautiful and vibrant in the very beginning, all of a sudden now, it's kind of rusty looking. And it gets a little bit stale. This thing that used to be so thriving and it was just growing by leaps and bounds, now, now it seems like it's just kind of a shell of what it used to be. My question is to you this morning is, what do we do about that? Is there anything that we can do about that? When marriage inevitably hits that that plateau, that flat spot, whenever marriage runs into that section that we might call the new wearing off, what then? What do we do? It is true that for one reason or another, that's probably going to happen in all of our marriages. And maybe that's going to be due to our, to our negligence. Maybe that's going to be due to some, some mismanagement or some other things. Whatever the culprit is, this thing is no longer new and exciting like it was in the beginning. We've now hit year four. Or maybe like my wife and I, we're working on year 12. Or we're in year 25 or year 40. We've grown acquainted and accustomed to a relationship that, well, it just really isn't all that fulfilling. We're just kind of going through the motions. We're resigned to the fact that, ah, this is life. This is just the way that it is. Marriage, ah, whatever. But I am convinced that it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, I am convinced that God does not want it to be that way. That marriage is somehow intended to peak in year five. Or even in year one and then slowly it begins to lose its joy and vitality until well, until it's just really not much of anything. That is not God's intention. In fact, what we're reading here in Genesis chapter 2 says that God expects marriage to be a wonderful and amazing relationship. And in fact, that it is something that can be sustained all the way to the very end. And seeing as how God is the designer of marriage, He did, after all, officiate the very first wedding, it should come as no surprise to us that God also is the sustainer of marriage. And I believe that He has given us every single tool that we possibly need to sustain this relationship even after the new has worn off. And this morning, I want to make use of one of those tools the Bible, and I want to use this book to show us three things that will help us whenever our marriages do run into that period when the news worn off. And I do want you to notice this morning that I have deliberately avoided titling this lesson, How to Put the Spark Back into Your Marriage, How to Rekindle the Sizzle Once Again. I'm not doing that today. Because all too often what folks believe is, is that if you just have more romance, if you just can get some fireworks working once again, if you just have more intimacy, then that'll just fix everything. But the truth of the matter is, while God did give the sexual union to be a blessing in marriage, that really is just intended to be the icing on the cake. And let's be honest, icing on a rotten cake, it doesn't taste very good, does it? It just doesn't work all that well. Which is why this morning, what we want to do is we want to drill down to a more fundamental level. This morning we want to highlight three areas in marriage that we need to fixate on and we need to work on revitalizing. Three areas that need to be continually nurtured so that our marriages can indeed be the vibrant and fulfilling relationship that God created them to be in the very beginning. And that all begins with this very first idea. And that is that we need to just go back and remember. We need to remember what it means to serve again. You know, sometimes I believe we just forget the very basis for marriage. Marriage is not about finding someone who will make it their sole preoccupation in life to just do for me all of the time. No. Marriage is a relationship where we mutually... Serve one another. Can we grab a little bit of Bible here? Look with me in First Peter chapter 3. In First Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter speaks here about the marriage relationship. And he begins by saying some things to wives. That begins actually all the way back up in verse 1. But can we pick up around verse 5? In First Peter chapter 3 and in verse 5, Peter says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Verse 7 now. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, There's a lot that could be said about those verses. And in fact, in this series this year, we have touched upon things that those verses talk about. But I really want you to underline in your Bible there in verse 7 that word, likewise. Likewise. Peter says wives have some things that they need to be doing in marriage. And then he says that husbands, likewise, have some things that they need to be doing in marriage. Do you see what Peter's saying? Peter's saying that there is some reciprocity in this relationship, there is reciprocity in serving and loving and caring. Now, I realize that that certainly isn't anything new that you've never heard before. In fact, it's really so obvious that we're able to do that in our relationship Well, when it first begins. We're able to do that even when we're dating. Can you remember back that far? Can you remember back when you were dating how it was all about how can I serve and please and do for this other person? Guys, for example, we would ask, where would she like to go eat? How can I please her? What would she like to go out and do tonight? And ladies as well, what kind of perfume does he like the smell of? Can I learn to cook his favorite meal? What television show does he like to watch? In the beginning, we're all about the other person. But what happens is, is we get married. And some time goes by and then maybe we get some kids and we start pouring ourselves into our kids and we pour ourselves into our job, our career. And as a result, some of that serving of our spouse that was so prevalent in the beginning, some of that begins to diminish. And in its place are increasing amounts of those oughts and shouldas She should have done this for me. He ought to be doing more of that for me. And in fact, right now, some of you are maybe even thinking, maybe you're even elbowing your spouse saying, are you listening? Are you paying attention? Boy, i tell you what, here's a bunch of stuff you should have been doing for me. But listen to me. That's not the way that we need to approach this relationship. Can I invite you to John the 13th chapter? In John the 13th chapter, we get here a powerful illustration of what it means to serve. In John chapter 13, this is the night before Jesus is going to be arrested and then be crucified. In John the 13th chapter, this is at the Last Supper in the upper room and Jesus is with His disciples. In John chapter 13, I'm reading here beginning in verse 3. John 13 verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, He rose from supper... And he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You need to know that that was a dirty and filthy job. That was the kind of job that was reserved for the most menial of slaves. And of course, Peter has some resistance to that, verse 8. And Jesus has to talk him through that and work him through that until ultimately Jesus washes everybody's feet, verse 12. Then he explains the significance of what he's just done, verse 14. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do you hear Jesus here? Now I don't think that there's any doubt that the first and primary application of John 13 is to our relationships with our brothers and our sisters in Christ? How are we serving one another as the body of the Lord? But I want to ask you something, brother, sister. Aren't you a Christian in your marriage? Doesn't the principle of serving that Jesus models for us in John 13, doesn't that apply not just in a church context, but that also applies in our homes? Shouldn't I be looking at this passage and asking myself, Whose feet am I washing in my marriage? Am I serving my spouse? That's what we need to be asking. I want you to notice that in John chapter 13, there was 12 guys sitting at that table and they were all waiting for somebody else to come and to serve them. And I'm saying to you this morning that nothing makes a marriage run dry faster than two people who are both waiting on the other one to do some serving. That's a fail. Have you ever seen or heard this little quotation about about the marriage box? I came across this a few years ago. In fact, I think I even shared it once before in a previous lesson. Not exactly sure who wrote this, but I do think that it makes this point quite well. Uh, The marriage box idea says this. Most people get married believing the myth that marriage is a beautiful box of all of the things that they long for. Companionship, intimacy, friendship, etc. But the truth is that marriage at the start is an empty box. You must put something in before you can take anything out. A couple must learn the art and must form the habit of giving and loving and serving and praising and keeping the box full. If you take out more than you put in, the box will be empty. Isn't that what Jesus is telling us in John chapter 13? What am I putting in the box? How long has it been since I put something in there? How long has it been since I served my mate? And I do need to emphasize right here that that needs to be a whole lot more than just an occasional date night. It needs to be a whole lot more than every now and then remembering, oh, I should send her some flowers. Those are good things. Those are fine things. But what we're talking about here is an intentional desire to give of self continually and constantly and regularly. That this is habitually who I am in this relationship. I serve you. What Jesus says is, blessed are you if you do that. Serving. Serving will help a whole lot whenever the new wears off. And that's just like this second idea. When the new wears off, then secondly what we need to do is we need to get reacquainted with our roles once again. And if we are going to talk about roles in marriage, where do you think we're going to go? Well, if you've been paying attention at all during this series this year, you know we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5. So let's just go ahead and get over there right now. In Ephesians chapter 5, I'm reading here beginning in verse 22. My hope is that by the end of this year, we'll have read these verses so much, we'll be able to quote them from memory. But even more so that we'll be able to live these passages. In Ephesians 5, read with me beginning in verse 22, because there the apostle says, Wives... Therefore a man shall leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. There's Genesis 2 all over again. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, how does our society today feel about those passages? Well, you know that by and large our society rails against those passages. Our society very much hates what those verses are saying. No way, no how, not ever, ever going to do that. But can I suggest to you this morning that maybe the reason that most marriages fail is because of a failure to accept what God has set up here Because there's never been any kind of real structure. Hey, we're not doing Ephesians 5, so so we don't have any real structure. There's never been any real established and defined roles. There's never been an understanding that, hey, this right here is how this is going to work. And as a result, over time, there is just constant friction and combat and pushing and tugging and jockeying for position. There's sniping and fussing and grabbing and arguing over turf. And while much of that may be unspoken at first, eventually it reaches a point where one or the other says, I've had enough of this. I'm tired of all the tension. I'm not going to do this anymore. Well, what Ephesians 5 gives us is a plan for a marriage that does work. That in a Christian home, a husband is going to be the leader of that home. He will fill that leadership role and the wife in turn... She will submit and she will follow Him in her role. That is God's plan. And you can read Ephesians chapter 5 all day long and you're still going to come away with this simple plan. Can I just say this right here as well? It doesn't matter who might be sitting on Oprah's couch this week hawking some best-selling relationship book or marriage book based on some kind of pop psychology ideas. I'm telling you, nobody, He's going to improve on God's plan here in Ephesians 5 for the home. Because a marriage has to have governing structure. Every institution, every organization needs governing structure because well because decisions have to be made. And if in a marriage there never was never was any differences if there was never any difficulty, if everybody just agreed on everything all of the time, well, hey, well, well then you wouldn't really even need any kind of structure. But, but that's not how it ever happens, is it? It doesn't ever work out that way. There's going to be times where despite our best efforts, there is going to be disagreement, real disagreement, sharp disagreement. We talk it over, we try to work through it, but well, we still are disagreeing in the end. Well, what are you going to do next? The noted author, C.S. Lewis, he wrote about this in his book, Mere Christianity. He said this, he said, in a marriage, you can't vote because you only got two. Who's going to be the tiebreaker there? Where's the deciding vote going to come from? He went on to say, if marriage is permanent, then one or the other party must, in the last resort, have the power to decide family policy. You cannot have a permanent association... Without a constitution, guess what? Ephesians chapter 5 is that constitution. And when we are not fulfilling the roles that are outlined in that constitution, then guess what? Marriage isn't going to be very good. She doesn't really want to follow and so he can't lead. He isn't really being a leader and so she has to jump in and do it. He resents that. She feels bad about that. It's just a mess. What kind of marriage is that? That's a marriage that's going to have a lot of conflict and it's going to sap the life out of it really, really fast. If your marriage, if your marriage has hit that flat spot, if the new has worn off and man, it just doesn't seem like we're able to, to get it back once again, could it be? Could it be that the reason that you are at that kind of that impasse is because no one in the relationship is where they belong? The husband's not where he should be, the wife is not where she should be? As a result, people are bumping into one another? Everybody's pulling and tugging and fighting and going in opposite directions? Stop it. Let's get back to where the Lord put us. Wives, say it. Say to your husband I will respect your leadership. I will trust you and love you and yield to you. I am with you. Lead me. Husbands, say it. Say to your wife, I will be the leader that God calls me to be. I will lead you like Christ leads, sacrificially in love. You can count on me to be your head. Let's get back into those roles that God uniquely created men and women to fill. Nothing sucks the life out of marriage quicker than two people who are trying to somehow coexist outside of the parameters of what God has set up that will never, ever work. But when we jump into those roles that Ephesians 5 lays out, what we find is we find that our marriage begins to function like a well-oiled machine Those roles just work to reinforce one another. Indeed, it ends up making the bond tighter and stronger and better as the years go by. When we get comfortable in those roles, that helps us tremendously whenever the new wears off. Which leads into this third and final idea this morning. And that is that when the new wears off, what we need to do is we need to go back and we need to recognize, we need to pay attention to when we are truly being loved. We need to just be more aware, more appreciative of the love that our spouse is demonstrating toward us, even in small ways. I recently saw a a friend on Facebook. This girl's a teenager, I think. And she's not married yet. And, And I think when she shared this, she meant for this to be humorous, But it also was accompanied with kind of one of those little sad face, teardrop emojis. And my fear is that she actually believes this to be true. But the little meme, it says this, My love life will never be satisfactory until someone runs through an airport to stop me from getting on a flight. Wow. You know, American Airlines says that you can't run through the airport unless you have a ticket. But we marvel at that. We marvel that there are people who actually think that that is a realistic view of love, because when you set your hopes, you set the bar just so hopelessly high. What's going to happen is, is you're never, you're never going to be satisfied. It's just never going to happen. If you maybe as a Kentucky football fan, if you have it in your mind that you know what, I'm never going to be happy until the Kentucky football team wins the national championship. <sighs> You're probably going to be pretty unhappy, aren't you? You're just probably never going to be satisfied in your life. If you maybe say to yourself, I'm never going to be satisfied until I know everything in the entire big old Bible. Well, as noble of an aspiration as that is, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're just never going to make it. You're just never going to be satisfied. You see, when we set impossibly high standards and expectations and we then tie our happiness and our satisfaction to those things, then what we have done is we have set ourselves up for certain disappointment. And then when disappointment sets in, what do we do? Well, we turn on the television or we go to the movies or we curl up with one of those romance novels or we get to looking at other couples on social media And from what we see in those places, we generate our expectations of what marriage really ought to look like in our minds. And so, for example, I'm watching some movie about some married couple who has just this this perfect life. They have a perfect home. It's always just so neat and tidy and clean. And the wife, she just looks amazing. Her hair and her makeup are impeccable. And the husband, oh my, he's so sensitive, he's so romantic, he's so chiseled, he'd rather go shopping with her than to watch the football game. And oh, wow, it's just a fairy tale romance. And then, of course, the plot device comes into work into the story, and it places a big wedge between them. And now here we are, we don't know if their relationship is going to be able to weather the storm. And so she gets ready to board a plane. She's about to fly off. She's going to leave her husband until until he comes running through the airport to stop her from getting on that flight. And what do we do? We, we sob, and we cry, and we shed happy tears, and we come away thinking, ah, oh, why can't my relationship be like that? Why hasn't my marriage had that big running through the airport scene? That's real love. That's what a vibrant and happy marriage looks like, so big and so dramatic. Really? Is that really our definition of what it means to be loved? Look with me in the Old Testament, please, in the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4, maybe just find the book of Matthew and take a pretty sharp left. You'll get to Zechariah pretty quickly. Uh, Zechariah is a book of the Bible about God's people when they returned from Babylonian captivity. And what they found was they found that the city of Jerusalem was in absolute ruin. And so they said about the task of rebuilding the temple. However, there were some amongst them who were old enough to remember the original temple, Solomon's temple. And what they said is they said, Yeah, this new temple we're building, it'll it'll be good, I guess, but, but it won't be like the one that we had before. And so God through His prophet says this in Zechariah chapter 4 and in verse 10. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. And they shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Just stop right there. This business of oh, my, this is is the best that we can do. This temple that we're putting together now, it's just so weak and it's so pathetic. They despised it. And if their expectations were going to be, oh, it's just never going to be satisfied because it's never going to be good as Solomon's, then guess what? They never would be satisfied. And so God, through His prophet, rebukes that attitude. God says, listen here, I'm doing something great. You can't see it. You don't realize it. But you just watch and see, I'm going to do something amazing, even with small things. And I want to suggest to you this morning that God may be doing a great work in our marriage... And sometimes we just don't even notice it. We're looking for something big. We're looking for something dramatic. And it's all because we're not paying attention to those small things. We've despised the day of small things. We're not recognizing all of the small ways on a day-to-day basis in which we are being loved by our spouse. That husband, for example who decided to forego buying himself that, that new sports car or that big new pickup truck in favor of buying a beat-up minivan because that's what fits within the family budget, that is that is love, isn't it? Or that wife, that wife who gets up in the middle of the night and she rocks a fussy baby for the 15th time. Or she changes crib sheets at 3 in the morning because the baby's thrown up all over them. That, that is real love. One writer said this, he said there's this rumor, this fiction, this fantasy, this black and white screen cliche that love always looks like a mad romantic dash through an airport for one last kiss. That's a lie. And you know what? That's exactly right. That is not reality. It makes for great entertainment. I get that. But that idea, that kind of thinking, it must not be brought home and then become the measuring stick for our marriages. I'm suggesting to you this morning that we could really make our marriages better even after the new has worn off if we would count our blessings. If we would stop and notice and see just how good things really, really are. I'm saying that that old hymn about count your many blessings, name them one by one. We need to sing that song in more places than just right here. In fact, can we just think about that song for a moment? You know the words of that song. Count your many blessings. It's number 392 in our song books. And I like this song, but I'd really like for us to think about this song in the context of marriage. Let's, let's reimagine this song a little bit and see how it all fits together. Verse 1. When upon life's billows you are tempest tossed in your marriage, when you're discouraged thinking that all is lost in your marriage, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it'll surprise you what the Lord has done in your marriage. Are you ever burdened in your marriage with a load of care? Does the cross seem so heavy in your marriage that you've been called to bear? Count your many blessings and every doubt will fly and you will be singing as the days go by in your marriage. Verse 3, And so amid the conflict in your marriages, whether it's great or whether it's small, don't be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings and angels will attend. Help and comfort give you in your marriage to your journey's end. The chorus, count your blessings. Count the blessings in your marriage. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. And you'll see what God has done in our marriages. That's the ticket. We need to open up our eyes. Because the truth is, if we are not careful... We're just going to miss what we have. We're not going to see those blessings. Instead, we're going to be left feeling dissatisfied with all of the things that we don't have. And we'll end up despising all the small things that are real and that are genuine and that mean so much. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18 that in everything you are to give thanks. Let's give thanks in our marriage by recognizing when it is that we are truly loved. Because when we do that, when we do that, that will help us long after the new has worn off. Now, I don't know everything about what happened in Adam and Eve's marriage relationship after the garden. I don't know exactly how all of that played out. But I am confident of this. I am confident that God supplied them all of the help, all of the encouragement, all of the resources that they need to work through that flat spot. God gave them all of the exact same things that He makes available to us today so that we can make marriage wonderful and amazing like it was in the very beginning. But the fact of the matter is, it takes effort. In fact, it takes constant effort. It takes the resisting of the temptation to to just kind of put the relationship on, on cruise control, we'll just kind of ride on cruise. Why, if anything, we've seen this morning, it's that marriage takes work in order to work. And if we're willing to continue putting in that work long after the honeymoon is over, if we're willing to keep putting in that work until death do us part, then I believe we can know that little bit of paradise on earth that God established so long ago in the Garden of Eden. Would you pray with me, please? Let's go to God in prayer. Our dear, gracious God, we come before you this morning thanking you so much for your Word. We're thankful, Father, for the help and the instruction that it provides us in our daily lives. Father, we are especially mindful right now and especially grateful for how your Word helps us in our marriages Father, we thank You and we praise You for designing marriage and creating it. But Father, we also praise You for being the sustainer of marriage. And Father, we come to You confessing that all too often we allow things to to get in the way. We do allow our relationship to be put on cruise control and we don't place the effort that maybe we once did into that relationship to make it good and to make it great. Father, help us. Help us to do better. Father, help us to remember what it means to serve one another. Help us to get reacquainted with those roles that you have designed for us. And Father, help us to recognize when and where we are truly being loved. Father, we thank you so much for the precious blessing and the gift of of our spouses and the joy that that can bring to us. We pray that you would help us to each, each and every day to do the kinds of things that will help us to appreciate and to love you even more for the blessings that you've given us through the marriage relationship. We thank you so much for Jesus and how His relationship with the church models and provides a blueprint for what our marriages ought to be. And it is through His blessed and holy name that we offer this prayer. And amen.